Hello, today is July the 15th, 2021. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada, and I continue my series of ELSA Life podcasts with Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York, who I think has been on vacation for the last few weeks. Is that correct? You can tell from the tan. I can I can tell from the tan you look you look you look relaxed, okay? Which leads me to think that LSAT tutoring can be a stressful thing at certain times. No, <laughs> never. There is no pressure on anybody in this. Situation. Absolutely not. My God. So you don't, you don't feel when you sit there that you're literally absorbing the anxiety coming from them, and that part that's, of your role a- is I will take some of your anxiety, so you have less. Absolutely. This is what this is what we do as tutors, as parents, as as trusted advisors, right? Let me swallow some of your anxiety so that you can go out and perform and then I'll throw it up later or go on vacation for a couple of weeks and relax. Yeah, but we hit a couple home runs in June. We had a few students who yeah, either did. overperformed or, you know, were had a lot of variability and then ended up at the at the top of their range and so as far as cycles go or administrations go, that was one of the least stressful. Everybody was pretty much happy out of my yeah. clients last time at bat. And it yeah, doesn't always right. go that way, that's for sure. Well, it can't, it can't always go that way. Right. One wonders if it had as much to do with this sort of being the last dregs of the question bank that LSAC had before they have to go back to the uh, to the experimental sections and that just they, we happened to get a batch of relatively easy questions. They normally account for that with the scale, although I know that, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, the the oh, Spivey's been very critical of the, the their treatment of the scale. So maybe they are. Yeah. I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens. Well, they don't push the scale that much, right? It's rarely more than plus or minus three. So it could be, you know, I heard a lot of reports of a pretty easy reading comp section, all things being equal. So maybe mm-hmm. that was it. Did that mean, would, would that mean the passages were interesting or the questions were okay? Uh, I mean, yes and yes, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, generally it's about feel, right? It's just that everything felt good about that one. Yeah, I, flow. I read passages and I understood them, and I read questions and I knew what I was looking for. And No major hang-ups. And you yeah. felt after having read them leaving the test that, oh, my God, I learned some valuable stuff today. Oh, Thank you, Elsa. Yeah, fantastic. This is what we're after. Well, that's really, really good. So you're feeling good about the performances of your students, which is wonderful. How many of them scored higher than they actually needed to? Well, what what would need mean, right? (laughs) I had Uh, a bunch who hit their goal or, or exceeded it. Yeah. And, and and those who who didn't quite get there are still in a very competitive position. I think everybody was pretty happy. Yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. Well, that must have made it a lot easier for you to decompress on your vacation. Sure, absolutely. You know, I, and it was a stark contrast from April. I think April was full of stress. April was really tough for everybody. So this was a nice, this was a nice June administration. Got to go away with the kids for a while. We spent you know six days in the pool. It was great. And April uh, was the opposite experience for me. I had a bunch of students underperform, even students who had done a lot of tutoring and a lot of prepping and so i was sort of left scratching my head after that administration yeah well it seems like a lot of people's uh law school futures are settled at this point i see from the group that all kinds of them have proclaimed they're finished with the lsat yeah. largely you can see this by the all of the lsat books that are for sale I'm surprised they're going to the trouble of even selling them. I, I suspect a lot of them are having a ceremony of destruction somewhere. I did that at the end of, if it wasn't the end of high school, maybe it was the end of middle school. I took the entire book bag of, you know, filled up notebooks and scratch paper and whatever it was and brought it down to a stream near my house and set it all on fire. It was great. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. You know, when well, I got means- in... When I got into law school, I took all of my old science books because I had worked for many years in science research and I gave them all away. And man, it wasn't too long afterward that I wanted that organic chemistry book to look something <laughs> up. <laughs> oh, my God. So you felt deprived? <laughs> I do. I still want that book back, but it's expensive, so I don't buy it. Better to not have it, Keith, honestly. <laughs> I teach organic a- chemistry occasionally, so... Uh, it would be helpful. Uh-huh. 
Interesting. Well, so I, I guess what's happening here, I get the impression that for the, for the majority of this cycle is sort of over. So a lot of the people I'm seeing in the group seem to be, you know, relatively new people coming on, just kind of trying to get their bearings on, you know, what's the LSAT about? How should they think about it? How should they start? What are some things they can do to get pointed in the right direction? How do you avoid getting pointed in the wrong direction? All that stuff. So why don't we, um, you know, since we know LSAT is life, uh, why don't we call today's podcast Life 101? <laughs> what How, should you do? What should you do? When, when the LSAT enters <laughs> your life, how should you respond? That's the question, right? When the LSAT enters your life, how should you respond? Why don't we talk about that? Just going right on back to the basics. Well, okay. So what's the first reaction people have when they hear about the LSAT and the necessity, the requirement of having to somehow get over that hurdle. What, what do they usually say to you? I think that, I mean, for me, the first thing I always hear is about the dread that they feel about another standardized test. Oh, God, I hated the SAT. I hated the ACT. I never liked my state exams. And the thought of having to take another one is just so awful. But, you know, law school is my dream. Being a lawyer is my dream. And so I have to figure out a way to get over this hump. Because frankly, the people that love standardized testing, the weirdos like me, um, they're not the ones that are out seeking advice. They're the ones that sort of dive in head first. But the ones that are out there like looking for direction are usually a little bit scared. They've been put off by their past experiences. You know, the other thing that concerns me is when a student is uh, underappreciates the difficulty of the exam and they tell me things like, well, I was good at the SAT. I was good at the GRE. So I think I'm going to pick this up very quickly. That's always a, a red flag for me that they're going to try to pick it up quickly and sabotage their own efforts in the process. So I hate to hear that from well, a what potential that client. probably means, Keith, is that they are planning on approaching the LSAT the same way they approach the GRE or the SAT, right? Right. Why don't we start there? Is it a good idea to think about the LSAT the same way you think about the SAT or the GRE? No. Probably not unless you had some really good high school teachers or really good college professors who taught you some very strong study skills. And even, and even then, I think more than any other test, this test is it's skill-based, not content-based, and requires a, a skill-based approach. Okay. And I agree with you totally. And I was kind of expecting that answer. So I knew what my next question was going to be here. What's the difference between a skills-based approach and a content-based approach? If it's content, all you need are index cards and, and good memorization mnemonic techniques, and you can remember it. Not to call out Keith and his organic chemistry background. I remember <laughs> my, my, my freshman year in org. And yes, there are some things that you have to be able to do. You have to be able to execute the calculations. But a lot of it is about memorizing lists and lists and lists of naming conventions and about, uh, you know, certain compounds. And you have to go about figuring out a way to make sure all that happens. You know, my mother was a great example. She was a, a chemistry major in college and then went on to medical school. And even, you know, she's now, I don't want to make this wrong, she's almost 77. And um, she still remembers all of the mnemonic devices she used in college and in med school to, to memorize all those formulas. She's got them all still in her Oh, my. Is that good or bad? <laughs> it's fantastic. She remembers all the poetry that she learned as a, as a middle schooler. She's amazing. I mean, it's really remarkable. That um, is remarkable. But, but that's a content test, right? Th those things are content-based subjects. This is about execution. This is about can you do it in the moment? Can you do the thing that is required of you? And memorizing a list of ideas doesn't mean that you can actually execute them under duress. And that's what the LSAT requires. Is there anything worth memorizing? Is there anything that's an imperative or essential to memorize for the LSAT? Well, I other know. than to put the right answer to the question. It's such a loaded question. You know, I had this experience. I was teaching a physiology class one time and toward the end of the semester, I overheard a couple of students 
uh, uh, discussing the organic chemistry final. And I said to him, I said, your professor won't tell you this, but I'm going to give you the secret to OCHEM. Just memorize everything. Don't try to see the trends and all the blah, blah, blah nonsense your professor told you. Just get to memorizing. Make your flashcards and memorize the heck out of that stuff. And the student looked at me kind of puzzled and she said, you know, at the beginning of the semester in this class, you told us don't do a lot of memorizing, look for the trends because physiology has these master principles that drive everything. And it was such a powerful moment for me because I realized that it's that curse of knowledge. The memorizing isn't bad. It's not enough. (laughs) And so I, I, you know, I wanted to, I, I had to go back and revise my own approach to teaching physiology. Yes, I want them to see those broad principles, but the way you see them is by understanding all of the specific details that you memorize along the way. And if you don't memorize the details, how in the world is the pattern gonna make any sense to you? I, I, I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody in my office hours, and I, and I made the analogy to middle school and high school mathematics, but it's the, same, it's the same principle, right? At some point, you go beyond the natural math, and you get into things that are complex enough that you need formulas or algorithms to describe them. And what happens so early is that the students that struggle, their teachers default to pushing them to just memorize the algorithm. And they fail to dig in on the conceptual ideas. And when they do that, they start digging themselves a hole. Because then when the next thing comes around, they never understood the previous thing. And now in order to understand this thing, you had to understand the previous thing. But I have to get through this quiz, so I'm just going to memorize this formula too. And that's how you get 16, 17, 18-year-olds that are in pre-calculus, that are doing limits, that are doing you know, the beginnings of, uh, of differentiation and integration. But they don't understand a bit about integers. Not a bit. They don't get it at all. They don't get algebra at all. But they know how to do things, right? They learn how to do things. They don't understand any of it. So with the LSAT, I think there are things that you can memorize. But there will be a limit. There will be a cap as to how well you can perform. Because at some point, you need to understand them in order to understand the nuances. It's a bit, Okay, so one more analogy for you. It's a bit like writing music, okay? If you're Salieri, you can learn all the rules about harmony and melody and, and construction of, of good classical music. And you can write things that follow the formulas. But to be Mozart, you have to learn when you have to break the formula, when you can break the rules, and when it's allowed, when it's better to break the rules. With the LSAT, there are points at which those rules aren't enough. They're not going to get you your 175. You need to understand what underlies them. You need to understand all of that that reasoning structure that underlies it. Just memorizing rules can't get you that understanding. I certainly, I certainly think that's correct, Keith. What would you you add to that? It's like I said, it's a complicated question for me because I tend to be the, um, you know, sort of the the flip side of the market typically. And if the market is describing something well, I really try to drive, uh, dig into what they're not describing well. So I have focused on the idea that memorizing isn't the key. But I have to admit, going back to that conversation with the physiology student, that I really don't know how to describe patterns to students if they don't know the meanings of the specific words, if they haven't memorized which words are synonyms for this, which words are synonyms for that. So they're so complementary that I don't, I don't know which, you know, it's a chicken and an egg thing. You, you need both so crucially that you just can't tease them apart. I will okay. say, I, 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 let me just say, I, I think that the thing that Keith is getting at here is that you have to memorize them. But that shouldn't be the first thing you do, nor should it be something that you do with the intention simply of memorizing it. Don't just create flashcards and memorize terminology and memorize the thing on the other side of the flashcard. You should memorize it by virtue of the fact that you've learned it, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you need to turn it into muscle memory. If it's not muscle memory, you can't use it anyway, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Good analogy. Yeah. So it's almost as though, well, you know, this is, well, I mean, what would be, you know, just say two, three things. You say there are some things worth memorizing. Could you, you know, describe two or three things that you think are worth memorizing? The standard conditional logic language, yeah, you know, the all, the every, the only, the only, okay. if, the, mm-hmm. the unless kind of stuff. Sure. I think that it's worth it to study and memorize a good causal framework. That's something that we've been 
advocating for our students because the LR questions are testing causal reasoning, you know, per perhaps more than they have in the past. So I would want a good framework for that. And that's not something you you derive on the fly. You'd have to study it a bit. Yeah. I think okay. the thing to memorize is the process, not the content. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, other than that conditional language, which I think is vital, though, I think you can understand it in the natural language if you have a process for it. But, you know, rederiving it every time is a pain in the butt. Right. You don't want to have to stare at only if or unless for 30 seconds to figure it out every time. At some point, you're like, OK, I know that this one's hard for me. Let me just memorize it so that I can remember it. Or, or at least memorize a starting template, at least memorize a tool that you can use to you know, make better decisions on it. Yeah, my my impression of this, you know, which I'm reminded of every time I see some discussion in the group about these issues, is that, you know, a little bit of structure in terms of the starting point probably is helpful. But anything beyond that is very dangerous because I think that it also is very, very good uh, creating content where you see the words you're looking for, but they mean something entirely different in that context, right? Absolutely. Or just removing the contextual cues that you're used to. But you're right, they do use them against you in certain circumstances. I was just uh, put that on one of our, our uh, discussion points today that I think you can, if you study the wrong way, you can leave yourself vulnerable to that. Well, Using let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Um, but what, what do you think the first thing somebody should do when, you know, they get a letter in the mail saying, uh, well, they don't have a draft anymore. It used to be a draft notice, but uh, welcome. The LSAT is now part of your life. You have to take a diagnostic test. Go get Good. yourself an account at Law Hub at Law School Admissions Council. Um, they have a free interface where you get to experience the test as you will experience it on test day. They have is it three free tests on there now. Um, have they removed the flex format ones yet? I don't know. But no, they're take still a, there. Take a four section, because your test is going to be four section, take a four section practice test, fully timed, just do it, grade it, and get your answers. And that's it, and get your score so that you have a baseline. Have that test be the June 2007 test, not because it's any better or any worse than any other test, but it's what people use as a diagnostic, and there's nothing wrong with it, so go ahead and do it. So this law hub, can you elaborate on this? Because as you talk about, I'm being honest, I have not looked at it. Uh, so it. How much of this is free? And I understand you have to pay 99 bucks or something for. You do. So it's, it is free to create the account. It is free to use, uh, I think it's three tests. I think it's June 2007, uh, prep test number 73, and prep test May 2020, which is the most recently released test. Um, though that one only has three sections. The other two have four. Um, you can use this interface to take the test in a timed manner or in what they call self-paced mode, um, which is fully untimed. So it'll, it'll have a clock, but you can just keep going as long as you need to go. Um, and you can take the test as you, you would have it there. It has a little window. It shows you the question. It gives you the answer choices. You click on the one you like. You move on to the next question. And then when you're done, it spits out your results. Okay. Uh, so that, those are obviously actual LSAT questions. Now, you know, I'm a very much committed to the view that people should be using actual LSAT questions. Uh, but let's say they get their diagnostic and whatever it is, it's going to be too low. That's just human nature. Uh, you know, you get a 178. Oh, my God. I, where, where do the other two points go, right? Um, that's grandpa. <laughs> that's, that's what my grandfather always said to my mother, so. Where do the other two points go? Yeah, okay. Um, what then? So, you know, you're armed with this. You've done a diagnostic. What do you think the next rational thing to do would be here? You know, it's so uh, hard to answer because it depends strongly on budget, I think. And so we might make some assumptions about what kind of student we're advising. I imagine most people want to be very budget savvy. And so what I tell people is research the market very carefully because it's a financial black hole and start with the free resources like Khan Academy. I mean, you need Law Hub, it's a hundred bucks, but then 
use Khan Academy, use forums, use the free explanations online until you can figure out what resource you need and then start investing in the more expensive options. And then, even then I would go for the, the less expensive books first, like the LSAT trainer, the loophole, and then start to step up to the more expensive products like Seven Sage or, um, or LSAT Demon. Well, let me ask you this. Would it make sense, say somebody does two tests, you know, they print out, you know, they obviously, they do have access to their answers, right? Okay. Would it make sense for them to go to a tutor and say, here's what happened, you know, and just get somebody, you know, just pay some money to get an analysis of where they went wrong and what some good resources might be? I mean, yes, though I would say that you probably don't even have to pay money to do that, right? If somebody came to me and said, I need some advice about what to do, can I send you my answer sheet? Can you take a quick look and give me some advice? I, there are some things that can be learned from the answer sheet, though the truth is even the beginner probably can do that analysis themselves, right? How did you do on each section type? Did, you, did things get worse as the logical reasoning section went on? Um, was there one passage or one game in particular that gave you trouble, right? You can do that analysis yourself. Um, but, but the advice, I mean, not that the advice is standard across the board, but Keith's advice is right. If you need a baseline, if you need a foundation on the test, go use the free resource. Khan is out there. It's not perfect. It's not comprehensive. It's not going to work for everybody, but it's going to explain what the test is. And you're going to have so, some vocabulary. So tell me more about Khan. What, what, do, you, what do you find at Khan Academy? There are video explanations that that sort of increase in complexity over the course of the, a section type, games, arguments, or, or reading comp, where they explain to you what the quest, what what the sections are, what kinds of stimuli they'll give you, what kinds of questions they can ask you about it, and what sort of a standard baseline technique for solving those questions would be. Okay, and it's all really complex. It makes use of actual questions, correct? Yes. Very limited, though. They have just a few of the official tests. And uh, what most people report is that they're re seeing recycled questions within a few weeks or a few months. And then it's time to move on to something more. OK, so the purpose of Khan Academy is to sort of to get to know the all set a little better. Yeah. yeah. And but if your diagnostic you should do, I mean, if your diagnostic score is really high, I might even suggest just skip Khan Academy. If you're intuitively scoring 155 or, or higher. I don't know what Khan Academy is going to do for you. Yeah. Well, on that point, I think that point, you know, does deserve some elaboration. Um, I certainly don't think people should get involved in changing anything that's doing that's going well for them. Right. Not changing, but you know, I had a I had a conversation with somebody today, and I said, "Look, you're already scoring. You're scoring in the 165s, and you don't know what you're doing. The way to score in the 170s is not by examining the questions you're getting wrong." It's by examining the questions you're getting right. You don't know why you're getting things right. So it could be even for the moderate or high scorer, they do need the vocabulary and the scaffold of having the basics underneath them in order to understand why it is their intuition is driving them the way it is. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be able to apply that to the harder questions. They might oh, not I mean, just need to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on it, but you know, you could consume the whole thing in a week or two. Wouldn't be that hard. Okay, so we've got Khan, we've got Law Hub. Is it fair to say that everybody's going to need to pay that ninety-nine bucks? Yes. Okay, so they need to budget yes. that in, and that's that's non-negotiable. My impression yeah, is that that's because uh, it's expected in all the, the courses and tutoring services out there. Is that correct? Not just that, but it's a hell of a price for a lot of tests. You with oh, the it's official. A great deal. I mean, no with the official no. interface, like, there's nothing more you could want from a, a question test yeah. bank. It, it, the price is good, too. Yeah. I, you know, the other the other I mean, talking about questions you get early on from people, you know, they'll say, well, I'm really a paper and pencil person. So can't I just do this out of the super prep books? And my answer is, well, sure, you could buy the official tests on Amazon for 10 bucks a pop or you could buy the books at 30 bucks a pop for 10 tests. But they're on paper. You only get to use them once. And that's not the way you're actually taking the test. That's like saying, I like playing tennis. Can't I just play it against a wall? Well, no. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's very good advice. I, I agree with you a thousand percent on that. But, you know, part of preparing for an exam is preparing in the format that it's going to be delivered. Absolutely. No question. What does that mean for the market for LSAT prep books, by the way? 
at some point, LSAC is going to stop publishing them. I don't know when, but they will. Um, you know, I think there's there's science and value behind having a printed book, a printed prep book when it comes to learning technique. You know, you really do absorb the material better when you have something on paper than when you have it on a computer screen and you can interact it with it in that way. I, okay. I don't know. I mean, the courses are going digital. Maybe maybe this is the beginning of the end. The courses are going digital. Yeah. You know, Seven Sage and LSAT Demon and, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, the, the, the big box companies are doing it, too. Um, they still publish their books, right? But as long as there's a Barnes and Noble out there, they're gonna publish books. But I wouldn't well, be Well, the books are, are basically brochures for the course, aren't they? Oh, sure. Yeah, perhaps. I think that Seven Sage and LSAT Demon had really clever bit pricing models, and and that's everybody has to follow that or come up with something more innovative, I suppose. What what is it about their pricing models that's clever? They have these subscription services that are very flexible. You can cancel them without investing thousands of dollars and test them out for just a few, a hundred or a few hundred dollars for a month. And uh, and then if they're helpful, you choose whether to, you know, cancel or renew. So the, the initial investment's lower and then the quality of the products is high enough to convince people to stay. It's like the software for a service model, right? This is what Windows did with with Office, and you know, it, rather than spending three hundred dollars every time you need a new version of Office, you pay a ten dollar a month subscription, and you get the latest updates every time you need them. Yeah, yeah, of course. So difficult question to answer because it means different things for different people. But how how far in advance of the tests? First of all, when do you think people should do the LSAT in the application cycle? early really really early okay how early as early as you can as early as you're ready to commit time to it you should be you should be working at it because okay. you you don't know how you don't know how many times you're going to have to take it you don't know what's going to happen between now and tomorrow don't put off to tomorrow what you can start today on the LSAT because you know let let's say you're starting today it's July what is it July 15th and you intend to take this test in October Okay, and then a month from now, uh, a water main bursts, and you have to move out of your apartment, and you lose three weeks on your study time. If you had put off your starting for three weeks, you lose out on that three weeks. Suddenly, everything's pushed back three months, and you miss out on scholarships. Start today. If you're done early, great. But most people won't be done in three months. It's going to take them six months, and sometimes it takes longer. And you have to start now. It doesn't run out. Yeah, so so these schools are mostly using a rolling admissions process, right? Yep. Yes. Right, meaning, yeah, meaning that basically they'll evaluate applicants as they as their files are complete. Yeah. Without waiting to a specific date. Though remember, you know, that at some point the scholarship money starts to dry up. Mm -hmm. When it does, you don't want to be on the other side of that day when your dream school has given away their last $50,000. Well, no, I think there's no question. You know, and there's another good reason to do it early is you get out of your life early. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are a few people in life who want to become what I would call LSAT scholars or LSAT historians, you know, this sort of thing. Most of them just see it as a hurdle to get over. Although I have heard each of you say in different contexts before that you think that the LSAT prep experience can be beneficial for other purposes, right? Certainly. Yeah. But I do think that... elaborate on that a bit. I mean, there, there's so many themes after going to law school when I look back at the LSAT that I think um, understanding that either helped me in law school or my failure to understand that during LSAT prep, you know, inhibited me or, or was, you know, an extra burden on me during law school. So, for example, in my Civ Pro class, some of the um, fact patterns were so complicated that I really needed to diagram, come up with very organized diagrams to sort through the, the situation. And my proclivity to do that early and often meant that I could answer those questions very quickly, while some of my classmates were still just trying to grapple with what the, you know, what the stimulus, what the fact pattern said. Um, but on the flip side, I didn't understand the syllogism form that I talk about frequently, the major premise and minor premise form. And I spent a whole semester of law school thinking of 
legal rules as entirely subjective applications. And I never truly understood the argument for how it could be a more subjective or more objective science. It was second semester in my con law class when my professor finally told me the right vocabulary for me to start researching that and see how the syllogism was a model for legal reasoning and legal thinking. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, so they want to start, say, you know, six months early. Probably they want to commit to a date to do the LSAT to the extent they can, right? Because if you don't have the date in front of you, it does tend to make it harder to, hard to prep for it. Um, so we've got Con, we've got Law Hub. What are your thoughts on the market for books, prep books? I mean, we, you know, we've, we've talked about this at length, and ultimately, I think all the prep books have perfectly fine information, and all of them are flawed in, in their own ways. Um, I don't think there's any reason to invest hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars in huge series of books when you don't even know what you don't know. You mean you um, shouldn't go out and start your own LSAT library? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I saw somebody yesterday. She had a stack of 15 books in front of her. And she said, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? I said, well, no, you you know, that's really terrible because what you're doing is you're getting different perspectives on the test. I call it too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you, do you agree with that statement I just made that these books, you know, these third party books are ultimately just somebody's perception of the test more than anything? Sure, though, though I think they all, I mean, they're all well-meaning and they all present fundamentally the parts of the test that are there, but none of them is a way to get better. They're just information. It's like reading your organic chemistry textbook, right? Like, it's just the information. It's just the stuff that's there. They're not training you to get better and they're not teaching you how to think about your own work and analyze your own work in order to improve upon it. And that's the part that's important. One of the problems with a lot of books, especially with a lot of pages, it gives you the impression that the goal is sort of the acquisition of information. Right. You know, more than the application. That was that was sort of the way I perceived a lot of, you know, the people doing LSAT prep when I was doing it. You know, they, uh, you know, you'd occasionally see people who would, you know, taking this course or that course, they'd walk in with, you know, literally a notebook of, you know, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, how in the world can anybody uh, manage that type of stuff under the time constraints of the test? So, you know, I've always seen the thing as being very light on information, even light on basic approaches and trying to get a lot of mileage out of a few tools, so to speak. Yeah. No, I think that's completely right, which is why Keith and I, I think, both struggle to come up with things, things that you really had to memorize. There just, there just isn't all that much information on this test. There's just an enormous amount of skill. Acquired, acquired skill. Acquired skill. Acquired, acquired being acquired able skill. to execute sort of a new task, if you will, uh, you know, under a lot of time pressure. It's almost as though, I mean, I see the LSAT as essentially trying to grapple with a, with a new game, it's almost like a new sport that you've never played before, right? And they don't tell you the rules. You have to yeah. figure them out. You, you try to play the game, you lose a few, and then you adjust. Yeah, and it's, then it's you like get the only thing that's clear is the objective, put the answer they want. But the logic rules are not explicitly given to you. They kind of are, I guess, in the prep books, but even those are inadequate in terms of the deep underlying logic of the test. So. They'll tell you, you know, here's the proper deductions. They don't tell you philosophically why that is a proper deduction. So the, in my opinion, they don't tell you the rules of the game. Yeah. You figure them out, you know, as you go. Yeah. So a lot of it, a lot of it obviously is practice, right? But, you know, practice without practicing some kind of specific approach or something is probably less than optimal, right? We were talking about this this morning, about the, the idea of, of differentiated practice and spaced repetition, right? That it's really important that it's not drilling that you're doing. Because drilling presumes, presumes to know what's happening at the next step, right? If you take all, if you take 15 kinds of questions that are all identical in their approach to the rhetoric and their approach to the, to the logic, it's really easy to get each one of them right because you know exactly what they're going to give you when they're giving it to you, right? It's like giving a kid 10 addition problems of single-digit numbers all in a row. Well, that's not what math is. It's going to be different things uh, thrown at you at every step. So you have to differentiate your practice. You have to 
tease both sides of, of what is and is not possible. And the best way to do that is to use the official material. Oh, I, I think there's absolutely no question you. about that. I mean, there's no reason. I mean, you know, when I started doing this, I mean, really a long time ago, uh, you know, the LSATs, believe it or not, were not even published yet. And so, you know, one had to completely, completely create, you know, some kind of a course or curriculum and what have you. Interesting. When oh, did they was, start releasing those? That was not known to me. Yeah, they started releasing them around 1980. It was actually a lawsuit the Federal Trade Commission brought, brought uh, as I as I am mm-hmm. remembering this, uh, against the Educational Testing Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the by the way, the Law School Admission Council resisted this for the longest time, and then at the end, you know, decided to get with the program and start releasing the test. So it, you know, I think it would have been the late 70s. I mean, at one time I had all these tests, but, you know, I, I mean, this may sound bizarre, but it was a very exciting moment in my life when I received in the mail my first actual administered LSAT, you know, a few months after. And, um, you know, I was able to sort of, uh, you know, develop curriculum, you know, sort of test by test in those early years. But it was a completely different kind of approach to it from a teaching perspective, because you had to figure out what in the world they were really doing. And the, uh, you know, the test has evolved, of course, tremendously. But I recall, um, you know, the standard logic text in that era would have been Irving Coppi's Introduction to Logic. I don't know if it's still around or not. But I recall actually seeing excerpts from that particular book on LSATs. Wow during that time was a completely different thing. And I mean, the LSAT went through different test designers, I believe. But, um, you know, and I kind of look at what's happening now, with, you know, just all the released tests. And, you know, I think that probably the LSAT industry is a lot more competitive because it's easy to get into because the tests are there, right? And they're expecting you to use them. But, uh, you know, it's nothing like the problem in the early days of having to sort of pioneer this and, you know, work with a small number of tests and try to figure out what was happening. Um, yeah, that's know, interesting. You know, it, is, it is interesting. I mean, I don't, I think I've gotten rid of all that stuff. Um, you know, I can, if I, if I come across it, I will let you know, because you're the only two guys in the world I know who might actually be interested in seeing a, a historic LSAT. I don't, I don't know what that says about us. I think it's good. Well, it's good. It's good if you want to interact with people who are interested in the LSAT. And I think that's a good idea, actually, because... You know, the thing that, that's, that I find really interesting about each of you independently and collectively, of course, is how, you know, how passionate you are about the yellow. I mean, like you actually like this stuff. Yeah, I do. I, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, not as much as you because, you know, I've got a lot more. I, I mean, I have nothing to do with it anymore, but I had a lot more years at it. Uh, so it does wear off. But I think it's I think that that's critical, you know, to find a tutor who's you know, I actually Anderson in the test. That's True. So, yeah. Tell me this, right? So we talk about, uh, you know, we're trying to figure, it's a skills-based test and we're trying to improve on this and we're trying to practice, you know, basic approaches. And you're saying you think sort of six months out. Quantity versus quality and the time of day you practice. What are your thoughts on that? What do you think about these people? This weekend, by God, I've got all day Saturday, all day Sunday, free 10 hours a day, and I'm going to devote both, all the whole 20 hours to LSAT prep. What do you think about that? <laughs> They're going to be pretty, pretty miserable by Sunday lunch, I'll tell you that. Um, I, I think consistency is important. Um, I would rather somebody do an hour every day than do 30 hours on the weekend. Well, that's because it's, you know, you see it as training for an athletic event, right? You know, so you work on your swing every morning for a while. But I said every morning, what do you think about the time of day on this type of stuff? Does it make a difference? That's something I talk about a lot because I've had difficulty with some professionals who work in high hour jobs, um, paralegals in particular, who I think are often expected to work whatever hours the attorney works basically. And so they end up doing far more than they 
they acknowledge at the beginning of our of our engagement and that always has a really bad effect on the outcome and so i encourage them early on to start putting lsat prep first in their schedule and then giving their employer their leftovers instead of the reverse you know i used to suggest to people that they get up an hour earlier every day and do an hour of lsat prep first thing in the morning as long as you're not sacrificing sleep though Go ahead. Yeah, well, that, that's true. Yeah. It's really personal as well. There are people for whom their, you know, their cognitive function is best, you know, late morning. Some people it's post dinner, right? It's it's a very it's a very like physiological personal yeah concept. And so a person who is not a morning person and knows that about themselves, we've got good news, which is that LSAT administrations are now not restricted to to eight a.m the way that the SAT and ACT are. You can schedule it any time of the day. You can schedule it in three in the morning if you want to. So you have to find out what's optimal for you and build that into the way that you yeah. study for the LSAT. And then you have to schedule your LSAT for the time of day that works best for you. Yeah, I, I think that, I, you know, I think that this is an extremely important point. I really do. I think that one, you know, here's a phrase I used to use. This comes back to me now. One hour in the morning is equivalent to three in the evening. We can translate that into one hour at your best time of day is equivalent to three at your worst, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Plus, I think so much of this is about momentum. You know, if you start, you can get into a rut. If you try to do too much and you start not improving or getting worse, underperforming, Burn I, mean, I think people need to take a bit of time off if they're doing that. And you, you need to be you need to be self-aware. You need to be cognizant of the fact that the work that I'm doing right now is bad work. This happened to me yesterday. Uh, we're teaching a class on the May 2020 test next week. Um, and so I opened it up yesterday to start doing the reading section because I hadn't looked at it in a while. And it was very clear to me that five minutes in, I was distracted and I wasn't paying attention and I wasn't gaining anything from it. Yeah. You know what I did? Yeah, I yeah, shut yeah. it off. I no it question away. about that. All this right. Can... So the last, last thing to... I guess we need to discuss here uh, would be getting help, getting help, whether it's tutors, peers, what have you, getting help. It's so budget dependent. Yeah. And it's, and again, it's personal. I think number one is that there's no right answer and it's really critical that you not fall victim to the idea that, well, my friend Keith, got a 175 and he did X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to do exactly the same thing he did, and that'll get me my 175. That's the first mistake that everybody makes. I have a friend who. I have heard that. that it just, do you think it people just always tell the truth about their LSAT experiences? Mm, always. What used to know. strike me was, you know, my impression was that God, there were so many more people who were doing well than who were not doing well. You know, when, in fact, the scores are normally distributed, right? I will say, I think there's something about the, the Facebook group and the Reddit groups out there and, and the way that social media has colored the way we interact with the world. That people are more willing to be forthright about their failures now than they were when I was a kid. Uh, with, without these opportunities. So I, I actually see a lot of people posting really positive and inspiring sort of screeds about the, their their struggles and their failures and their their determination. I, I read a lot of that stuff and I actually find that that to be helpful. Um, I, I hope that people are reading those posts and finding inspiration and, and confidence. And yes, I am well, the, uh, the most inspirational posts in the the uh, Facebook group, the LSAT study group, uh, you know, I think are actually from the, uh, you know, the ones who achieved a lot, you know, going from lower scores to higher scores, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's their achievement. Yeah. What's that? You want, to, you want to hear about the growth, right? You want to hear about the process. Because there are a lot yeah. of people that talk about the magical snapping of the fingers. You know, I had a 137 and then I went and worked with Keith and suddenly, poof, 172. Yeah, no, I don't care about that. I care about what, what what the struggles were. How did you get there, right? What were the what were the hard places? Because I want to be able to relate to you, and I want to know that my struggles are like your struggles, and I can overcome them as well. Because otherwise, I'm going to fall victim to fixed mindset. I'm going to think I'm stupid and incapable. Oh my God! You know, the mind is such a powerful thing. That's the worst thing. You know, I mean, even if you get the question wrong, I think I always encourage people to say. 
did you get it wrong instantly? And they'll say yes. And I say, well, congratulations, because you got it wrong. But God, you got it wrong more quickly than anybody else. <laughs> there you go. Which, you know, can actually be important. I mean, seriously, if you're going to get stuff wrong on this, you, you know, not, you really get it wrong quickly. OK, you know, take pride in how quickly you got it wrong. <laughs> I've always said on RC, the time trap was one of the biggest obstacles on the section, not being unwilling to miss that one question and spending five or six minutes on it and then sabotaging the next two is ultimately what what I found very difficult. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you can get anything right, but at what cost? Right. Uh, you know, I think I think that maybe all LSAT prep programs should have a module called opportunity cost. You know, this is why we do triple review, because we want some of our students to realize, even with unlimited time, you're going to miss some questions. And if that doesn't convince you that those questions aren't valuable on a time test, nothing else will. Missing them with as much time and as many resources as you have available to you should be the signal that there's a problem here. And so for most of my students, that's a key moment in their improvement, being unable to answer it at all. Yeah, it certainly can be. All right, as we kind of wrap this up for today, this has been interesting, and I hope we'll give people some, you know, some bearings in terms of how to how to move forward with this. I've asked you this before, but I'll ask you again. I think it's an appropriate question. Um, but what do you think of the characteristics of a good LSAT tutor? To the extent that you can generalize. Yeah, knowledgeable about the exam, of course, goes without saying. Uh, experienced and and someone who cares about the students would be like the top few things I'd put on my list. I I think somebody who's flexible, somebody who isn't trying to pitch a specific curriculum or approach, but rather is interested in helping you where you are, where you stand today. Um, somebody who can help you achieve reasonable goals, set reasonable goals and achieve them. Um, somebody for whom it's not you know, an hour of, of pounding ideas in your head, but who's going to yeah. help you not just yeah. with the content, but the psychology of the test, psychology of test taking. Well, your, your tutor has to be life, of course. So why should it be any different from life? Right. Yeah. Your tutor has to be inspirational. They have to motivate you. You have to want to learn because they engage with you in a way you like. And maybe that's something that doesn't get discussed enough. Yeah. You know, it brings back a memory uh Sometime in the latter part when I was doing this stuff, I was trying to figure out different ways to uh, teach certain parts of the test. So one day I did uh, this. I used the same questions and I did three tutorials. One of the few times I'd ever done individual tutoring. I did three individual tutorials with three different students. And you know what? There were completely three completely different classes. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the result of that you know, reinforce what we all know, but maybe haven't experienced is that uh, people are different and one size does not fit all on this. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, that's and maybe that's the takeaway, right? The takeaway for the new student is that you can't expect your experience to look like anybody else's. So be open to being, you know, self-aware and, 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 uh, you know, help, yeah. helping to design a, a, a path for yourself because you, you, you know, you're the most important part of it, and you're the one who knows best what is and is not working, what does and does not make sense. You can't just follow, you can't follow a book, can't follow a course, you can't follow a tutor. You have to, you have to be the one leading the charge. Well, I think, yeah, to put maybe put that slightly another way, okay, um, it is not your job to learn anything anybody is pitching. It is your job to discern the things that help you do better on the test. Uh, you know, that's that's important. All right. Um, closing thoughts. Keith, any further thoughts on this? Yeah, I will say that one of the reasons, you know, I've, I've shied away from large group classes and done almost exclusively private tutoring for many years now because of what we're discussing. I like the ability to be more flexible and interact with students. But I will say that teaching these this series of classes with Jake has been a, a positive experience for me because the students get two different perspectives. And so I don't fear that I'm shoving a method, you know, to them that they, they can't internalize because if they don't like my method, they always have a different perspective or an alternative to, to learn from. So I would say that uh, 
if people are listening and want more information about that, reach out to us. We have a class coming up and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I would guess, you know, I never thought about this before, but I would guess that, that the two of you learn a lot from each other. So much. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's you know, for those who don't know, I'll give the, the, the quick background. You know, Keith comes from a law background and taught at, at University of Texas and and um, was in big law for a while. I come from an education background. I've been a consultant for 20 years. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to law school. Um, You're so, so lucky. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. God, what a great life. Um, but, uh, but given that and given our experiences and given, given the differing focuses, we, we see the same material and we arrive at the same conclusions, but we have very different experiences that inform the way we understand it and communicate about it. Um, I've learned, I mean, it's, we're coming up on a year anniversary, Keith. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, in the last year, the amount that I've learned about legal thinking and the way that it relates to the LSAT is staggering to me. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think also, uh, so, so you're running these classes and, and the participants see the interaction between the two of you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, I think that would be very, very valuable to them so that they see clearly, you know, that there's not just one way of, of doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, we got to wrap it up for no other reason. I have an appointment in nine minutes. Um, <laughs> this, has been, this has been a great discussion, as always, and I would invite you to end this by, in the usual way, giving your coordinates where they would get in touch with you. Well, I'm at Last Call Bar Academy and um, on Facebook frequently, so that's probably the best way to reach out to me. Uh, I'm at nexusacademics.com, uh, and we can both be reached at triplereview.online. I'm also around Facebook, so you can you can hit me there. Yes, and uh, you know I'm the admin of the uh, this LSAT study group, and uh, I I think I should say that I thank each of you for. Uh, you know, your participation in the group, and you'll find them in the uh, LSAT study group as well, where they do answer questions uh, and engage with you, which is great. All right. Well, this is fantastic. And again, my name is John Richardson, and I'm speaking with you from Toronto, Canada, and I am not doing LSAT tutoring, so send your inquiries to Keith and Jake, whatever. And uh, until next time, thanks very much.